Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to TFR for part two of the interview with Galen Mason and Brian Axelrad of Service Provider Capital. In this part of the interview, we will cover the following. Their concerns about adverse selection and not receiving allocations in the most competitive deals. More on their process of collecting and vetting deal flow. How much deal flow they're actually seeing. How they help portfolio companies post-investment. And as always, we'll wrap up with some standard questions, key takeaways, and a tip of the week. Here's part two of the interview with Galen Mason and Brian Axelrad of Service Provider Capital. Are there concerns that you will not get access to competitive allocations where the entrepreneur can choose their investors? I, I live in fear of reading Premax term sheet now. <laughs> you used to read it. Oh, interesting. And now you're like, what? Ah, you know, and you're, who did that? You know, so especially now as we get things up and running where you're really trying to make sure, you know, God, our cell tower network is not up yet. So I live in constant paranoia. But I'll let Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... You know, uh, that's our goal. Like, that's our job, and that's what we're trying to do is to, just to make sure that we're that we're getting everything. And you know, like Aylan said, we're not going to get everything, but we need to give it an earnest shot to try to get into everything. Uh, and we've had situations where there was a Series A that uh, you know, new investor comes in, nobody get nobody else gets to participate other than you know one fund that came in with the lead. And we had a conversation with the founder and said, "Hey, can you make a little bit of room for us?" And he said. Why? And I said, you know, I could tell you all day long about our value proposition. You know what our value proposition is. If you reach out to us, you're going to get help from us one way or another. So you don't need that. You're just going to do it because you like us and because you appreciate what we're doing. And we got an allocation. And I think founders are very responsive and receptive to the notion of what we're doing. And, you know, we're never going to try to strong arm our our way in. We can't, right? We don't have, nobody really has that ability in venture, to be honest. And so for us, it's just a matter of, I mean, there are deals that we find out about after the fact and we chase them and we've gotten into some, uh, there's some that we're chasing now. And that's been the experience of the guys out of the Rocky mountain region. So they find out about a deal in Phoenix and they didn't get into it and they start getting on the phone with their LPs in the Phoenix area and they say, Hey, can we get in? Or maybe it was a fund out of Boulder that led the deal in Phoenix and they call up the VCs and say, Hey, do you guys have any room? So, you know, we, we try for that. We know it's not going to be perfect, but that's the name of the game, right? And part of, for us, you know, Galen mentioned, it doesn't matter what the company's doing, you know, if it fits the criteria. I think some people, I've had conversations with potential LPs who ended up not investing because they just don't get that. 
they don't get like, well, but you're not doing like, well, I thought VCs are supposed to do due diligence and they're supposed to vet out the company and <laughs> all this stuff. And we said, but if you're asking those kinds of questions, it's probably not the right fit. We're focused on people who really understand the strategy. And it's not so much that they don't have questions. They do have questions, but it's questions more about how does it work as opposed to people who have questions about does the strategy work and whether the strategy works essentially gets to, do you believe in Galen and I combined with the LP network? that that's going to be the thing that gets us those allocations. Yeah, I, I just would say, so we do do, I mean, our diligence is on does it fit our deal criteria, who is the lead, and that's following like this VC entity and who they're definitely doing diligence. Brian and I both know from representing companies that they're looking at things. Although I would also say it's not Brian and Galen. I, I would love to say I'm that amazing, but we are sort of melting into the 60 to 80 service providers throughout the Midwest region. It's that entire group right. and their deal flow. And we are the, you know, we're the, the minders of that, right? The one running the electric signal through the air. But it's that group that that's the market. And, the and the allocation question that you're asking gets to the core of what we're doing because the whole thing about does it drive better returns? Well, this, our fund's not an alpha strategy, right? We're not out there saying we're the better venture capitalist. That's not why you're providing money to service provider capital as an LP. This is an index-like strategy. And the way we do that is through the allocations and making sure we get into the deal. So the, the question is exactly right on point. And there are some people that it resonates with and some people that it doesn't. And our job is to prove that out. You know, I mean, I think it's easier for us to look at the way that the Rocky Mountain Fund has evolved over time and what they're tracking is good proof of concept that they've been able to do what they've sort of set out to do. And we're sort of tracking similarly and the cadence of deal flow and stuff that we're seeing sort of bears that out. But uh, it's, you know, our fun life is, is still got a few more years, and that's where we have to just keep making sure we are uh, earning our keep, so to speak. Cool. So I do want to talk a little bit more about the deal flow. Can you talk about your process for collecting the deal flow and vetting it to whatever degree that, that you do vet? Well, so we're a network of service providers, and when we started our network of service providers, it was Brian and me. <laughs> so that so that results in, hey, Brian, you got any Series A deals? Well, what are your Series A deal criteria, Galen? And we talk about that. And so it's very easy when it's just the two of you. And then you go and we get another service provider and another service provider, and each conversation results in us speaking with them about, um, hey, are you interested? And they may invest. And then they are also are early warning radar system. So they understand the deal criteria. In addition to that, any given founder may have multiple service providers around them. So you have multiple chances of one of your service providers raising their hand and bring it to your attention. The venture capitalists themselves are using service providers. So one of their service providers may bring it to your attention. Well, I guess on top of that, and even if, if it's a service provider that has not invested in our fund, they think it's just crazy. They look better if they say to the founder, Hey, I, I know another place where you could get some extra money. I mean, that's part of building relationships with your clients. Sure. So that's how we, I think, manage our deal flow and identify it is through the very LPs that, that, that we're having that conversation. So is it they will identify a, a candidate for funding and then they raise their hand or do you have some yeah, sort of get Slack a, you channel? Know, you'll, get a, that, you'll get a phone call. So, so we have a, this is amazing too, as lawyers where, so we have a, a CRM, you know, a very simple CRM that I think we're thinking of upgrading that, but- very simple CRM that we use to track all manner of things, right? So for me personally as a lawyer, boy, if I went and asked most of my lawyer friends, hey, you know, what do you think CRM stands for? They'd, they'd look at me funny and go look for like a code section or something, right? <laughs> and, and you talk to business people and they think that's insane. 
So we track those things through CRM, but it, it's an email, it's a phone call to someone, you know, at our SPC account and information that says, hey, uh, what do you think, you know, how about this? What do you think about this? And it, and it may come from a founder who's become aware of us. It may come from uh, the venture capitalist that's leading the deal. It may come from a venture capitalist that's already participating in the deal. It may come from any one of the service providers, right? And so it's also because of our design, pretty easy for, for us to be super quick, hey, okay, what size is the round? Is it this? And then over time, all those folks learn, here's what it is. It's super clear. So the market, in a way, I think, begins to sort of vet itself for what comes our way. But we'll also talk early before. Sometimes if someone's like, hey, this is going to be really hard to get into, we want to be sure they meet you ahead of time, um, that type of stuff. So I'd say it's like anyone, you're, you know, you're using your phone and your email and your text and your Voxer and everything else to keep in touch with folks. I'm very impressed at your less than 24-hour turnaround on email, Galen, because <laughs> my, my email turnaround is not nearly that good with, uh, with all the, the inbound and outbound flying here and there. So you must do a better job of managing it than I do. Uh, you know, I don't know. You maybe caught me on a good day. And oftentimes, uh, you know, you're answering questions off the top of your head, right? So my clients are all going to skin me when they hear this because like, well, geez, it took you a day, a day or two. And I think that that's where Brian and I were talking about this. Like, well, there's a difference between answer a question and go back and produce something, right? But I saw, it reminds me, I saw a note the other day from, I think it was from Guy Turner who was using this, I want to say it said Notion. And it said, Guy's email response time on average is 53 minutes or something. And I think maybe, I thought, is he using some automated system to tell people how fast he's responding? Which is one, super cool, but also I think probably super dangerous if something, you know, there should be like a, Hey, my wife just had a baby. Turn this off, please, or something like that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> That's incredible. Anyway, so I've been meaning to look into that. It's funny you say that, and thank you. Awesome. So uh, just last point on deal flow here. How much do you think, how much would you estimate you're seeing? So I think relative to what we're looking for, we're seeing the vast majority, and we find out about it one way or another. <clears throat> so if it's not inbound, we figure it out. Um, so we're we're operating pretty high. I mean, I don't have... I can't think of a percentage there, but I would say we're, you know, it's, it's pretty high in terms of what we're, we're targeting. Do you know how many Series A deals have, have been done over 2016 here in the Midwest? Well, I can tell you, so, so just in terms of what we've done, right? So in the last five and a half to six months, we've closed 10, 11, sorry, we just did one this week, uh, 11 <clears throat> deals in about five and a half. So we're looking at a cadence of about two a month. With four to five, I want to say, in the hopper where we've sort of committed and we're just waiting for the company to close the round. They've got a term sheet in hand and we're just waiting for wire instructions and confirmation that the lead funded. And those will close out in the next, by the end of the year. So, you know, at that cadence, I would say we're probably, I mean, if we're missing deals, it's across the three quarter period. It's maybe one a quarter that we might be missing. Yeah, I think there's, there's uh, I'm aware now of two that we missed that I, I'm almost certain from what we know would have fit our criteria, and we're working on it. We've been able to actually open a couple deals before we'll pay legal costs to get in, because again, I'm the paranoid guy, right? Remember, that <laughs> wants perfection in our index. <laughs> wow. Uh, a couple other things, too, I'd say on that is, you don't just sort of throw this up and hope it works. Like, we've done a good bit of research where you go and you say, okay, well, here's our theory, here's what we're going to do. How many deals, say we looked at this uh, going back three years, how many deals would we have seen? And it turns out if you look at the Midwest, you see somewhere between 20 and 30, we'll, we call it 25, depending on how you're measuring deals in the Midwest region as a whole. Now, you'll hear about a lot more deals, but you got to take out Series B deals, take out Series C deals. You take out the deal that looks like it fit from the media, but it, Uncle Joe was the lead putting in 
you know, a million dollars. That's not a fit for us. We're looking for the institutionally led. And Or if there was an institutional lead and they only put a quarter of a million in, you know, that's not a fit for us. Yeah, yep. I've had deals where I've seen <clears throat> news blog posts and stuff, XYZ company raised $2 million and I'll text Galen. And as soon as I see it and I'm like, did you hear about this deal? And he's like, wasn't a fit. So somehow he, it was on his radar and vice versa, right? He'll do the same thing and say, Hey, did you hear about that deal? And it's like, uh, yeah, uh, I did. It's, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a fit for us. So we, we see, that's why I say like out of the total market, we see a ton of stuff that's not a fit. I don't think either one of us could approximate what we see out of the total market relative to, you know, like all the deals that don't fit, but sort of the math, right? Cause I like to look at like the numbers. So if we sort of estimate that we think in the broader Midwest, there's probably six deals a quarter and we have a sense of how many of those are Chicago based as the sort of, you know, the hub for the broader Midwest and how much are outside Chicago market. So call it maybe four and a half and one and a half. If there's one and a half deals in the broader Midwest that fit our criteria a quarter, that's picking up or maybe it's two, right? Four and two. We sort of see that and then we measure ourselves against that. And that's sort of, that's still that two a month. And so we think to the extent that there's a seventh deal a quarter, right, that we miss, that means that for the, you know, we would be expecting to track this amount and we say, okay, well, we got this. We're either right there or there's one or two that we missed or maybe there's one or two that haven't been announced that we missed that we don't know about, right? That's, but we, we tend to hear about stuff. Um, and then, like Galen said, we chase it. We still try to get into it. There's a deal that we missed from months, months back, and we just sort of talked about whether or not there's an a new opportunity for us to get in based on new relationships that we're going to explore. So we're never going to give up the fight if we think that there's a way for us to get in because that's the way things work. And and there tends to always be a way. It's just whether or not somebody thinks that it's worth it for them. And we try to make it worth their while. I think the last point too, that maybe also kind of what you're getting at, Nick, is I've seen pitch decks and I've seen whether it's in like the LBO private equity space, the venture space where they say, well, we saw 3000 deals last year. We looked at a hundred we, you know, we went to term sheet on 20 and we closed three, that type of stuff. It's this idea of, well, what's your, what would be S service Federal capital Midwest 3000 equivalent. And part of it is going to be this like silent unknown. So for example, given that we are kind of merged into these service providers, we never know what they're seeing, but not sending our way. So we're not in always measuring what I think a traditional investor would call their deal flow, sure. right? It's sort of pre-vetted in a way, which again, to me, just makes the model that much cooler. <laughs> hey, you know, my, my selection process couldn't be more different, but I certainly appreciate the elegance and the simplicity of what you guys are doing. It's, uh, it's very clear and you guys can be decisive, whereas it's very difficult for, you know, a thesis-driven, sector-driven, theme-driven investor to do that. Yeah. And hopefully we can be, you know, once we get to know folks like you that are doing deals, we can help. This is, again, me reiterating the value of it is we can be helpful to you because if we see these things, it's like, nope, you got to go to Nick. Yeah, and you already have, actually. Um, (laughs) We don't need to get into all the examples here today, but uh, already been very helpful to me um, professionally. So to wrap this up, uh, you guys have already touched on this, but can you talk about the ways you provide value to Portcos post-investment? Sure. So I think I'll, I'll touch on one and Galen, you can riff off that. But the thing that I find the most intriguing whenever there's an opportunity is, you know, like I said, sort of at the very beginning, like we're not trying to get introduced as service providers. We're trying to get introduced as a fund to invest in the companies. Yep. And so when we have a portfolio company, we try to be very sensitive to like, we don't want them to feel after the fact, like, oh, this was just a, a chip for these guys to get in the game to drum up business. So where we see real value 
is this sort of cell tower network across ecosystems. So we have a couple of portfolio companies that are in the Midwest that are looking to expand into new areas, one of which in particular, a couple actually, have said, hey, uh, aren't you guys founded out of the Boulder area? I was thinking about that being our next office. Can you hook us up? And they're not necessarily asking for a real estate broker, though obviously if they want one, they can get one. What they're looking for is somebody to tie them in to the Boulder community. And now we're the perfect fit because all of a sudden one email or text to our guys out in the Rocky Mountain region will get them in front of dozens upon dozens, anybody they want, basically, whether it's investors, service providers, whoever. And all those people have their own networks. Obviously, it's like the LinkedIn thing, right? Second degree contacts. But it's like, oh, you're in this industry. You're in a real estate industry. You want to talk to real estate people, not necessarily brokers, but you want to talk to real estate people in the Boulder community? Sure. We know people at these development firms and we know people at these places and so on. So I love that. That's, I think, the thing where they've closed their financing. They may have future financing needs, but that's not what they're asking for. They're not coming to us saying, hey, I need a lawyer or I need an accountant. That's not, you know, that's we're around if they need it, but that's not what we're trying to do. It's really when they come to us and they say, hey, we know you guys are across regions. You've got this ecosystem connectivity that you can help us dial into. We'd love to tap into that. How can we do that? And then we just sort of say, go, right? And we just sort of hand them off to our partners and boom, it happens. Yeah, I would say much the same thing. So I might draw a distinction between we know to say we have mapped, right? So when we put the cell tower somewhere, there's a lot of thought that's gone into like, hey, put it on this corner of the farm because it's better located, right? So here are the three lawyers in Madison. Here's the two accountants in Madison that are doing, you know, between the group, 90% of the work. So our value is, as we want, we want to come in as a fund, but our value is the service provider's and their network. And, and I think that I am very careful to, to never promise, hey, I can do this for you, but I can tell you, here are the resources that we have at our disposal and how I, will, I can promise you that I will try to use them. When you look at what those resources are, it kind of speaks for itself that, well, well geez, this is better than just, you know, my neighbor's 10 grand or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or something like that. And I think the real uh, case is making that case to the venture capitalists too, who are leading these deals and sure. saying, geez, that, it's great to get that sort of network along for, for what we're leading. Yeah, I, just to follow up on that, because I think that's a really great point, that we're trying to be in the business of signal, not noise, right? So it's not just so much that somebody says, hey, do you can you tap us into Boulder? And then it's just, as Galen pointed out, a bunch of people that, that we know out there. It's These are the people who are core to the tech community or the startup community in Boulder. Here are the people who are core to the startup community in Madison. We can dial you into those people in particular so that when you sit down with them for coffee for an hour, that's a really, really valuable use of your time. Because we know as much as anybody that time is sort of your most precious commodity, right? So we want to be in the business of making sure people are spending their time wisely, both with us and with the people that we connect them to. And so I think that's really, it's, it's both helping connect them to people, but also making sure that they're talking to the core people in the communities they want to be talking to. Guys, if we could address any topic related to startups or venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? So I think you had mentioned earlier Jason Heltzer at Origin, uh, who's one of the partners over there. He just this last week or so wrote a blog post that talked about the way that financings, downstream financing, so Series B, C, and so on, people need to be thinking more creatively about how they structure financial outcomes 
And I thought it was really, really insightful. Jason's blog, I think, is called Venture Evolved, and I think he also posted on LinkedIn. So if people are interested, they can check that out. But I emailed Jason afterwards, and I said, that's, you know, people don't talk about that. And I think that's a really important point. And one of the things I was thinking about afterwards was entrepreneurs tend to undervalue simplicity at the beginning of their sort of journey, right? They want to do this with you know, equity incentives and they want to do this with this structure and it gets complicated and Galen and I always like roll our eyes and say, look, it's, that's going to cost more money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, and it's just like, keep it simple. Like the ultimate sophistication is simplicity. And we, we try to train people or coach them into that mindset at the beginning. But what happens is there's a shift along the way, whether it's because they're listening to their lawyer or they're listening to their investor or they just get it over time that they then overvalue simplicity and undervalue sort of the nuance of like reality as they get further and further along their path. And so Jason's point, I think, and in part really was, it was motivated is it was addressed in part to investors as much as entrepreneurs is as you get further along, you have to really be thoughtful about why the conventional standards don't necessarily always apply the same way. And you have to be more thoughtful about it. And that's something I don't think people talk about at all. I think there's a lot of people talk about at the beginning, you want to do things simply, you want to use the standard type of stuff and cost, but people don't talk about as you go further, that's where you're supposed to pick up on subtlety. That's where you're supposed to pick up on nuance and you really need to think about incentives. And Jason's point was motivated by the broader market uh, constraints, which is we have all these overvalued companies that now need to go out and raise more money. And what's going to happen? Are we going to have this flood of down rounds. And Jason's point was, nobody wants to down round. Can we be creative about how we think about the financial outcomes so that we can keep rounds, not, not necessarily being down rounds, but figure out a way to create the right risk return profile for companies and their investors and the crazy mess of incentives that you have from angel investors, early institutional investors, late institutional investors, founders, management team and just rank and file employees. And it's crazy, right? And people don't talk about that enough, I don't think. And I thought Jason's post, which I encourage everybody to read, was a really great start of that conversation. So I'd love to hear him talk more about it. So I'll check it out. But really quickly, what are some of the areas that tons of time and energy are wasted on early on? Maybe certain types of terms or structures? Are there a couple, two or three obvious ones that lots of time and energy go into where maybe simplicity is is much more elegant and, and a better choice? Yeah, I mean, people think people like to do things like multiple classes of stock or with the Facebook thing, people thought about how can founders control you know voting rights and things like that. I mean, just like pick pretty much anything that somebody reads in an article and says, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to do that too, right? It's like, just start a plain vanilla corporation, you know, think about how the founders are going to get their equity, make sure everybody vests, but don't do crazy vesting schedules about like milestones and things like that, unless you have a really, really, really critical business objective you're trying to achieve. But sometimes just being around for the ride time Galen and I, we are founders of a fund and we are on vesting schedules and they are time-based. And we're the most sophisticated audience out there probably, but we get that time is a proxy for efforts and it's appropriate. And if I decide tomorrow to sort of cut the hitch that ties me to the wagon, it's like, okay, well, I didn't put in the time to see it be successful. So why should I share in the, the value of it? And I think that's understanding that you don't have to tie yourself in knots to get to the right outcome. Think about what the the conventional structures are, and there's a reason for it. And it, the, the right conversation to have with a lawyer or accountant or investor is, okay, you're telling me this is standard. Why is it standard, right? 
because it evolved for a particular reason. And I think if people ask that question, well, why did it evolve this way? People who, who understand this stuff should be able to explain this is why it's that way and this is why it makes sense as opposed to starting the conversation, I saw this really interesting creative thing in an article and I want to mimic that, which goes completely against conventional structures. Yeah, I just to put on my Foley hat, I put it as, look, a startup is sort of a business with terminal cancer. If you don't get it fixed, you're dead, right? So... <laughs> You, you know, every <laughs> single thing that, that's your runway, right? And every single thing that you do, everything, every waking moment needs to be to fix that, right? And if you want to talk about going in the kitchen and making an amazing spaghetti meal, because it would be good for dinner tonight with the family, it's cool if you want to do that, because that's an important part of your psyche to get up and fight your death fight every day. But if that's not the reason, and you're just kind of lost on it, I'll really try and steer people back to this is a bad idea. Guys, uh, what startup investor has inspired and influenced you most and why? I certainly read a lot of the rags, I guess, so to speak, the blogs and everything, TFR included, right? All right. I listen to. And, um, so we're probably a little bit different. So for me, I would say here we are in this new space in the Midwest, in the, in the biggest city in the Midwest, now through this vehicle touching on people throughout the Midwest. So investors a little bit different. But for me, there's this guy named Jack Levin, who was a lawyer at Kirkland in the late 70s, early 80s. I think he's still there. But it really began to mix things up in the private equity LBO market. And I think that what he and, and that firm were able to do over time is very emblematic of what is and can be done here now in the Midwest. And that's led to some pretty amazing things. I think when you add in technology, an order of magnitude greater things can happen here. So that person as an investor with a service writer hat, it's a little different. I'm interested in how they took their path. But then the other thing I would say is the Midwest is a new, it's a new market, right? So you have to look at all these funds and investors that are now around. And I, I sort of take inspiration from them. So it's, you know, Hyde Park Venture Partners, Chicago Ventures, all of these people that 10 years ago weren't here, they were involved in the space in some way, and they're really honing their craft and their networks. And that, again, going back to kind of what I want to do is work with folks that are doing really cool things. And every one of those folks, math, network ventures, they're all just out building this market. So every time we talk to one of them, you're just sort of like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? What are you focused on? Right? What are you interested in at Newstack? Right? Things like that. It's just super interesting to hear. So, Yeah. I mean, and looking outside the Midwest, maybe I think I constantly read Fred Wilson and Mark Suster for whatever reason, I mean, they've established their brand, so they don't need to continue to put out thoughtful conversation pieces about venture. They do it anyways. And I think part of it is because at heart, they're teachers, they're coaches. They want people to know how to do this stuff and learn it themselves. And I mean, I read their stuff all the time. I get Fred Wilson's, you know, short couple paragraphs emailed to me every morning. I read it every morning. And I think it's just, it's, it's, they're having the conversations that should be had and sometimes they branch out to other things, but a lot of the times it's like, this is my experience. And sometimes it's not rosy. Sometimes they talk about things that weren't successful. Sometimes they think about decisions that they made that weren't good. And that's so critical because you got to learn by doing. And uh, they're helping all the rest of us who are learning by doing as we go to also learn from what they did, good or bad. The venture capital business is it's an apprentice model. I think a lot of people talk about that. You have to trial and error. and I think anybody who's willing to contribute to that conversation is somebody that I want to listen to. We, we trade posts all the time. 
among the two of us and among the, the broader, the Noah and Jody as well, we're just constantly trading stuff. And it's always funny to see we'll forward stuff to one another that we'll have seen was forwarded to whichever one of us by somebody within our circles that then we've seen a couple of other times from other people. And you'll see like really good, thoughtful content makes its way around because people are just like, that's really insightful. I'm, you know, that's, I'm glad that person shared it. And finally, guys, what's the best way for listeners to connect with each of you? I think the best way, like a lot of folks in this space, is through someone that, that you know and have done business with. So, yep. you know, finding someone that, that knows me is is probably the best way, I would say. Actually, really, by an order of magnitude, that's about the best way. But my email is gmason at foley.com. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. You know, and also don't hesitate to reach out if you don't have a introduction to either one of us, but um, take a second to not cut and paste sort of the standard email that goes to everybody <laughs> and just sort of say why you're reaching out to one of us in particular and why, for whatever reason, you think it makes sense. And it's okay to say, I don't really have a good reason for it. I just wanted to talk and see if maybe you had some thoughtful advice and, you know, wanted to hop on the phone for five or 10 minutes. We're happy to do that. I think that's part of how we got to the place that we are is both by doing that for other people, but most importantly for having other people do that for us. And my email is brian at serviceprovidercapital.com. Guys, it's been a huge pleasure, Galen, getting to know you. Brian, we just just recently met here, but uh, look forward to to many conversations in the future and hopefully some collaboration on deals going forward. Thanks Thanks for for having us. us. Love the blog. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Awesome to get the guys here on the show to reveal their strategy. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called discovering opportunity in the deal flow. As attorneys in the venture industry, Galen and Brian quickly realized that they and other service providers across the ecosystem had early access to nearly every deal. This is a major information and access advantage, but the service providers didn't have the means to cut large checks into these companies while the investors that did have the means are unable to get access to this volume of deal flow. Therein was the value. If they could connect the key points of access with the major sources of capital, everybody wins. And in parallel, they brought down the entry barriers for service providers to participate. 
Maybe your standard service provider can't cut a 100K check per deal, but maybe they can cut a 100K check into the fund that invests in all qualifying deals. In this way, these service providers could participate, help the companies they work with, share in the upside of their clients, and get diversification across a very risky asset class. And this cell tower network of service providers, as they called it, includes real estate, HR services, outsourced CFO, venture capitalists, wealth managers, lawyers, accountants, web design, and insurance. The final note here that they mentioned is that the key service providers that seem to get earliest access to deal flow includes lawyers and outsourced CFO. Okay, key takeaway number two is called an index fund with ongoing value. Galen and Brian are employing an index-like strategy. They are attempting to invest in every credible Series A deal in their region. Recall Jerry Newman's comments from the episode on non-unicorn investing, that if one were able to invest in every venture deal, they would yield a percentage return in the low to mid-20s. Now that spans all geographies and all stages, but it's still an astonishing figure. And the guys here have chosen the Midwest and the Series A stage for their index. Are they going to be a top-performing fund? Nope. But will they have much more diversified exposure to venture in their core region? Absolutely. If you're an LP seeking 10x returns, this is not the fund for you. However, if you're comfortable with a diversified, more modest return, you believe in your region as an underserved area, and you want to support the tech ecosystem through investment, SPC may be a great fit. Okay, key takeaway number three is called mechanics of the model. The first step for Galen and Brian was to build a network of service providers in their startup ecosystem. Then the service providers that work with early stage companies as clients begin referring deal flow to the SPC managers. Also, those same service providers become the core base of LPs in the fund. And then the guys put referred deals through the following checklist criteria. Is the company in the Midwest? Is the round being led by a credible institutional investor? Is that institutional investor investing 500K or more? Is the round size a million dollars or more? Is it a preferred equity round? And if the answer to each of these is yes, SPC invests. If not, SPC will make introductions to other investors that may help the startup fulfill this criteria. And their involvement, of course, does not end upon investment. They provide unique, ongoing value to the startups they invest in. They have the cell tower network. They know each of the service providers and how they can provide value. When a startup needs office space, financial help, talent acquisition help, legal, or development work, they can call on Galen and Brian for intros to the provider that's the best fit for what they're doing. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Hubs and Spokes, Product and Channel Innovation. I speak with many investors and entrepreneurs every week. Most investors get in touch because they want advice on how to differentiate. While I love to connect with others in the industry that are investing, I can save us all a lot of time right now. I cannot tell you how you're special. What I can do is talk you through the thought process of how one differentiates. And in our business, it's simple. Number one, how do you provide unique value that others don't? I.e., what is your product? 
And number two, how do you connect with promising startups before they've closed a raise? I.e., what's your channel? That's it. Value and deal flow. Galen and Brian get it. While you can criticize the index approach as much as you want, it's clear that they do offer value and they see a lot of deal flow. The big issue I see is that folks often neglect one of these two things. And more often than not, it's number two related to channel. There is a parallel here with startups that we are investing in. Every startup has a product strategy and a channel strategy. And the best startups are just as innovative on the channel side as they are on product. Let's consider an example. Were Dropbox and Box the first companies to attempt file storage, sharing, and access from the cloud? Of course not. But it's clear that they were the big winners. While I think they both did a nice job on the product side, it was their channel marketing strategy that really accelerated growth. Dropbox on the consumer side, an early pioneer of viral marketing, and Box on the enterprise side, employing a hub and spoke strategy. I've spoken many times on the program about the innovative water analytics product that I launched. The existing water testing process was a 30-minute, 15-step chemistry procedure requiring expert precision. And we developed a product that allowed an unskilled worker to perform four procedures in less than five minutes with only one step. And while the product is to thank for creating incredible customer excitement, it's not what got us to $100 million of revenue in the first year. It was the channel strategy that led to a fast, furious revenue ramp. While conducting 500-plus customer meetings during development, I learned a great deal about users, and not just what they buy, but also how they buy. On one such visit, a customer at one of the largest water municipalities in California casually mentioned that they'd require around 100 units but that their network would need more than a 1,000. It turns out that if you look at a map of large urban water treatment facilities, it looks very much like a series of hubs and spokes. The largest facility in the area exports their water to smaller facilities that export their water to the consumer's tap. And unbeknownst to me, each of these constituents follows the leader, so to speak. Whatever processes and products the hub is using is then adopted by all the spokes. So one modest sale to a major hub yielded a waterfall of customers connected to that hub. After this realization, we proceeded to include all the major urban hubs in our voice of customer testing. When the customer is a part of, or at least feels like they're a part of, a new innovative product creation, they become your top evangelist. Long before product launch, we seeded the market with an aggressive hub-and-spoke strategy. We put as much effort into an unprecedented channel strategy as we were putting into the product. The reality is that some of the worst products win big because they own the channel to the customer. And some of the best products fall down because they can't reach the customer. Do you want to invest in startups that are focused on just one of the two? Or would you rather invest in startups that are equally innovative on the product as they are on channel? And at the end of the day, we must all look in the mirror. When the best startups are choosing their investors, what do you think they're looking for? Okay, thanks again to Galen and Brian for joining me. It's always great to feature new and unique models here on the program. 
If you're out there listening and you've identified somebody doing something unique and interesting, please let me know. Shoot me an email and I'd be happy to have them here on the program for an interview. Okay, that'll wrap things up for this week. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. Mm-hmm.